Is there a God? How could you even know if there was a God? Romans 1, which we just had read, said this. Romans 1, verse 19 and 20. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. All humanity is without excuse because all humanity has had God plainly shown to them. What the writer of Romans is saying is that God reveals himself to everyone on some level through our self-awareness, our conscience, that idea of right and wrong, through observation of the creation. And you've probably experienced this too. I don't know if you've ever looked up at the sky in, in a very dark place with no light pollution and seen the vastness of the stars. It was 20, 25 years ago when I was up in Saranac Lake, New York, lying on a dock, looking up at the sky with a friend. And over the course of an hour or two, we saw two dozen shooting stars and just the vastness of so many stars. And I remember thinking, my goodness, we are so small. If you've ever seen one of those shots, those pictures of the earth taken from from space, it's also one of those mind-blowing things about how small we are. You could pull up a picture of the globe and you can locate North America, South America. You can even locate roughly where we live, but you can't see your town or your house. You certainly can't see you or me. It, we're so small. And the vastness of this universe becomes even more clear as you look at the sort of things that astrophysicists have been figuring out over the past couple decades. So just think about some of the size of the universe and the smallness of humanity and how this points us to something beyond us. The solar system that we live in, just the sun and the planets that rotate around it, is huge, right? From the Earth to the sun is 93 million miles away. The Earth to the Sun, 93 million miles. Now, to put that in perspective, most of us have, or most of you have driven to Florida at least once. The drive to Florida is 1,000 miles and takes 15 hours. 1,000 miles and 15 hours to drive to Florida. Just from the Earth to the Sun would take 93,000 trips to Florida. If you drove continuously, at 60, 65 miles per hour, it would take you 150 years to drive to the sun. And our solar system is built around one star in the Milky Way galaxy. You take a look at one of those photos of the Milky Way galaxy and all that streams of light that circle around are 200 to 400 billion stars, almost every one of them having its own solar system. The Milky Way galaxy that we're a part of is 120,000 light years apart. Or 120,000 light years in diameter, like from one side to the other. And again, this is again mind-blowing stuff, but one light year, one light year, the distance that you can travel at the speed of light in a year is 6 billion car trips to Florida. And our galaxy is 120,000 light years wide. Our galaxy is part of a larger cluster of galaxies. Uh, the one that we're a part of is called the Virgo Supercluster. 
And a, a supercluster of galaxies involves several thousand galaxies, each galaxy having billions of solar systems. And if you jump out even further to the known universe, the known universe contains millions of superclusters of galaxies, each supercluster containing thousands of galaxies, every galaxy containing billions of stars, every star potentially being its own sun and solar system. So it's mind blowing how large the universe is. But in order to put it a little bit more into context, let's think about it this way. Think about it in terms of sand. If our solar system, the sun and the planets that rotate around our sun, if our solar system was the size of a grain of sand, then the galaxy, the Milky Way galaxy, would be 25,000 auditoriums. We're sitting in this auditorium that seats almost 750 people. It would be 25,000 auditoriums filled with sand, just our Milky Way galaxy. And the known universe would be 23 billion auditoriums filled with sand. Putting it another way, one scientist was asked the question, is there more sand on Earth or more stars in the universe? And he said, well, when you talk about estimating the amount of sand in the, on the Earth, you count the oceans, you count the deserts, right? The Mojave Desert, all, all those things, all of North Africa. There is 7.5 and 18 zeros worth of sand, or it's 75 billion billion grains of sand on Earth, roughly. 75 billion billion. But the stars in the universe are 70,000 billion billion. It's 70 and 21 zeros instead of 75 and 18 zeros. And yet, and yet, even though there are 70,000 billion billion stars in the universe, there's about the same number of H2O molecules in 10 drops of water as there are stars in the known universe. From the very largest to the very smallest, the complexity and depth and uniqueness of human life is absolutely amazing. How did we get here? Why are we here? Theologian John Stott and pastor had a friend who was a surgeon who said, I am filled with the same awe and humility when I contemplate what goes on in a single cell as when I contemplate the sky on a clear night. The coordination of the complex activities of the cell in a common purpose hits the scientific part of me as the best evidence for an ultimate purpose. He's saying, when I look at the stars, when I look at a cell, the complexity drives me to think there must be something more. This is the argument from science called the fine-tuned argument. The fine-tuning of the universe, of the laws of physics, make it almost impossible for life to exist, except that it does. But yet, if some of the laws of physics change just the slightest bit, life is impossible. So, for example, hydrogen... Hydrogen fuses, and when hydrogen fuses, it creates energy. 0.7% of the fusion becomes energy. That's essentially what the sun is. It's the hydrogen fusing and creating the sun's energy. And it 
it burns off like this 0.7% becomes energy when a hydrogen molecule fuses. If instead of 0.7%, it was a little less, 0.6%, neutrons and protons could not bond and things like planets or rocks would never exist. There would be no life. If, on the other hand, hydrogen bonded and created a, a more energetic release of 0.8%, the universe would be expanding so rapidly that no hydrogen could survive and everything would be eaten up. The fact that hydrogen fuses and releases just such an amount of energy means life is possible. And when you start looking at the different ways that the universe is fine-tuned and life could not exist if things just shifted just a little bit, the likelihood of life at all is absolutely incredible. It's simply unbelievable that life exists. But you need to remember from a scientific perspective only, it's just a lucky accident. In 1990, the Voyager 1 space probe reached the edge of the solar system 3.7 billion miles away. And the people at NASA turned the Voyager around to take a photo back at our solar system and back towards Earth. There was this vast smear of rainbow-like colors. And in the midst of it was this tiny, tiny, tiny little pale blue dot 3.7 billion miles away. That pale blue dot was the Earth. And that's just from the edge of our solar system. Carl Sagan, astrophysicist and atheist said, talking about that pale blue dot, he said, that's here, that's home, that's us. On it, on that pale blue dot, everyone you love, everyone you know, Everyone you ever heard of, every human being who ever was, lived out their lives on a mote of dust suspended in a sunbeam. He's basically saying, yep, it's kind of amazing on that pale little blue dot that we exist, and yet there's no meaning to it. The psalmist thinks about it slightly differently. In Psalm 8.3, the psalmist looks up and says, When I look at the heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place. Then he looks down at humanity and then at the creatures on the earth in verses 5 through 8. And then he concludes at the end of Psalm 8, O Lord, our Lord, O God, my God, how majestic is your name in all the earth. The psalmist looks at the sky like an astronomer he observes and he reasons. In this vast, amazing, wonderful creation, I see the hand of God, and he overflows in praise, worship, and belief in God. Why, why does examining the universe lead some to reject God and others to worship him? Why do some people, when they examine the depth of this broad, vast universe or the complexities of a molecule, why do some reject God and others worship him? I think some of it has to do with just the nature of belief, which I want to spend the rest of our time talking about, and the tools and techniques we use 
to discern what we should believe. And I, I actually think the tools and techniques we tend to trust aren't great at discerning God. In other words, the things we tend to rely on to help us to understand what we should believe uh, are the wrong tools. It's like using a bicycle instead of a bloodhound to hunt a fugitive. And then riding around on that bicycle, and if the bicycle doesn't lead us to the fugitive, saying, well, there must not be a fugitive because the bicycle didn't take us there. What I mean is this, God cannot be proved scientifically. When we ask the question, is there a God, and you try to apply simply the rules of science, by physics and chemistry, you cannot prove God, but possibly by other ways of discerning things you can. By the effect of intentionality and design on the observed universe, maybe God can be discerned. Think about it another way. God isn't a physical being that you can cut apart and examine, but he's seen in our moral sensibilities and he's obvious in our experiences in life. There are a lot of other ways in which our discernment plays into belief in God. So as an example, like we live in today, in our culture today, it's secular relativism. And basically, secular relativism is the view that there, there isn't a God that we can know, and there is no such thing as absolute truth for all people. So secular relativism says anyone should be able to believe what they want, and no one can say there's absolute truth that is for all people. But the problem is our moral sensibilities don't align with that view. Because without absolute truth, without a sense of the transcendence, without a belief in God, you can't say, for example, racism is wrong. Well, you can't say it's wrong absolutely. What you can say, a secular humanist could say, I feel racism is wrong. Or we all agree right now, that is, that racism is wrong. But you can't prove why it's wrong. There's no basis, no foundation for why racism is wrong beyond me and my feelings. The problem is this, observation in nature, scientific observation in nature gives no moral absolutes. Biologists even say about human morality that it's just evolutionary. It's just a development for survival, but it doesn't actually exist. I mean, think about it this way, right? Uh, a mother pig has a bunch of piglets. And what does she do to the runt of the litter? She pushes the runt away so that it does not feed. That runt eventually dies. Now, we don't like that, but we don't think of the mother pig as evil. We say, well, it's just survival. It's just how she's wired to respond to the smallest pig. So you can't say it's morally wrong that she kicked the baby pig out. And the problem is, if you're going to apply scientific demands to belief in God, go ahead and apply those same things to your morality, and all of a sudden you realize that something like saying racism is evil is the same as saying a mama pig is evil for pushing out the runt. You really have no basis for it, other than you feel it's wrong. Christianity, on the other hand, grounds ethics in God, something higher than us. 
When it comes to racism, it says it's absolutely wrong because we are made in the image of God. Every one of us is created in God's image. And regardless of what we do or accomplish, regardless of our abilities, we are made in the image of God and are equal. Christianity takes it a step more when it says that Jesus Christ came and died for all people and that it is by grace we are saved. The idea that we are saved by grace means that no person is better and every one of us equally needs God's grace. And that means regardless of the color of your skin or the money in your pocketbooks or the intelligence inside of your brain or your athletic ability or your beauty or anything you can accomplish in this life, you are equal. Racism is wrong because we are saved by grace and we are made in the image of God and God grounds that beyond any culture or any feelings that I might have. Morality is one area where our moral sensibilities actually drive us to a belief in something absolute and transcendent. And what about, what about your experiences of beauty and joy, hope and anticipation of the future, love? Okay, so neurology posits this. Things like beauty and joy and love don't actually exist. It's all really a neurochemical illusion. Molecular biologist Francis Crick puts it pretty bluntly. He says, you, your joys and sorrows, your memories and ambitions, your sense of personal identity and free will are in fact no more than the behavior of a vast assembly of nerve cells and their associated molecules. Love doesn't exist. You just think it does. Now, this doesn't sit well even with atheists. Paul Kalanithi was a well-known neurosurgeon. He had grown up with faith, then pushed away from it as he continued his studies. But later in life, as he was facing cancer and also having a family, he wrote in his book, When Breath Becomes Air, to live by scientific proof alone is to banish not only God from the world, which he was fine with, but it's also to banish love, hate, meaning. He goes on to say, this is a world that is self-evidently not the world we live in. That self-evidently is talking about our experiences of love and joy, identity and meaning, hope, beauty. Those things are the evidence that there must be something more. So another question then to even ask as we're talking about the nature of belief is what comes into play when we believe something? So an atheist might say the existence of God is like believing in the existence of the Easter Bunny or Superman. I can't see them or prove them scientifically. Therefore, you can't tell me there's an Easter Bunny or Superman. But what if, what if the existence of God is less like belief in the existence of the Easter Bunny and more like belief in the existence of Julius Caesar? You can't observe and prove Julius Caesar either. You didn't meet Julius Caesar. You instead trust historical accounts written and recorded by other people. The historical evidence points you to the possibility and probability that Julius Caesar existed. So you're trusting in somebody else's writings and recordings about him. Another one, 
you can't prove your love for your family. So if I said, you love your family, right? Go ahead and prove it. Prove how you love your family. Prove that you love your family. You can't actually take a scalpel and cut you open and, and find that little spot where your love for your family grows. There's not some love for your family area inside of your physical body that we can observe. What you might point to instead is the effects of what you've done for them. You would point to how you sacrifice for them or how you've worked hard for them or the things you've done for them to show your love for them. And you would say, look at the effects of what I've done. And you might even say, hey, go talk to my family, talk to my kids, talk to my spouse. See what they say, see your family's experience of you. So the proof of your love existing is the effect of what you've done and the experience on those who've experienced your presence and love. And that might be part of the direction we should be looking when we're looking for God. The effects in this universe, the testimony, the words of those who've experienced him. Look, there's a lot of things that come into play when we're talking about our belief in God or our unbelief. Tim Keller, in his book, Making Sense of God, puts it all together when he says, believers and non-believers in God alike arrive at their position through a combination of experience, faith, reasoning, and intuition. In other words, none of us believes or disbelieves purely by reason. Whole bunches of things come into play, and ultimately, it involves faith. And beneath our beliefs, or our unbelief, if you want to call it that, we all have background beliefs. Background beliefs, this is a pretty core idea. It's one that we don't often think about. A background belief is an ideological commitment that we perceive, but never usually examine and can't really prove. It's our unchallenged assumptions. Those common sense things that everyone knows, in our opinion. Our background beliefs are the blueprint upon which our belief structure is built. Our background beliefs are the ecosystem in which the forest of our beliefs grow up. And our background beliefs are that, that sense that some things, when we're told them, are just so obviously true. And because of our background beliefs, other things are clearly false. And why would anyone ever believe that? So when somebody is converted, whether they are converted to, say, Christianity or converted out of it into atheism, conversions often happen not when our current beliefs are proven wrong, but when our background beliefs are challenged or they become less assumed. So let's say, for example, some of your background beliefs were because you grew up in a small town and you, you were heavily involved in a church in this Christian small town and the church warned you they warned you that secular people, secular people are sinful and they are destroying America. But then you leave that small town and you go off to college. And in college, you meet kind, generous, wonderful atheists. That background belief about the nature of secular people is thrown upside down. And then you wonder, you question, can I believe anything I learned in church? 
the background belief is shaken, opening you up to doubts, questions, and a total redirection of what you might trust. This is basically the story that David Sessions, a writer and atheist, talks about in his article called What Happens When People Lose Their Religion. You see, David Sessions had grown up in small town Christianity with a, a very certain view of the world. But then over the course of several years of college and going off to New York City and working, all of his background beliefs were broken and shattered and he began to believe something different. Here's what he writes about it, saying that basically nobody, nobody comes to a conversion point simply because their, their outward beliefs change. It's because their background and underneath beliefs become challenged. He writes, my experiences of moving to new cities and meeting new people, my experiences shattered many of the stereotypes and preconceived notions that made up the environment where my faith had once made sense. My world, that is the non-theoretical background way things make sense to us, my world shifted to the extent that things I previously believed would eventually come to seem unimaginable. He goes on to say, most of us like to believe we have well-grounded reasons for our belief and behavior. But something else besides just theories and arguments was driving my deconversion from Christianity. It was pulled along by massive changes in experience and my changing sense of what kind of person I wanted to become. My experiences and my aspirations, he says, made it possible to stop believing what I used to believe. He concludes with this, people like me don't just convert out of Christianity. We convert into something else, a new, equally faith-based story eclipsing the old one. In other words, when it comes to God, both belief or unbelief requires faith. You can't prove God exists. You can't prove he doesn't. But we need to be aware that how we sort through the evidence for or against God depends heavily on our unchallenged and unprovable assumptions. It's also, as David Sessions suggests, not a matter of believing in God or not believing. It's rather as Paul says in Romans 1, what kind of God are you believing in? Or who are you worshiping? Something will become ultimate. Something unprovable is what you will put your faith and trust in. What God and who are you worshiping? You know, if I were to sum up kind of where we should go with this whole question of, is there a God? I would say we need to think through the tools that we're using and make sure we're using the right ones. We need to be aware of our background beliefs. And I think we need to ask the right sorts of questions like, what makes the most sense of the vast universe and your love for your family? What position makes the most sense of the complexity of, of a cell as well as our sense of justice and our moral outrage at evil and our ridiculous self-awareness. 
What makes the most sense of all of that? Is it, number one, the entire universe is random and accidental, but really lucky. There is no such thing as good and evil, love and beauty. Your life doesn't matter. Just grow up and get over it. There is no God. Or, or does it make more sense that there's a God who created all and you with intentionality and love, the vast universe and your love for your family were a part of his design. What makes the most sense? What seems the most plausible to you? In Psalm 8, after the psalmist looks up at the stars, and he says, I see the work of your fingers, God, the moon and stars that you have set in place. He then goes on in Psalm 8, 4, to write, what is man that you are mindful of him? The son of man that you care for him. See, what drives the psalmist to praise and worship is because he has observed the universe. And he believes God is the almighty creator of this vastness out there. And yet, and yet, and yet, he is also mindful of us. He cares for us. That phrase, what is the son of man that you care for him? Care for comes from a Hebrew word, pakad. And it can also be translated instead of cares for, it could be translated longs for, seeks out, hunts, or visits. In other words, in this one half phrase of Psalm 8, 4, what is, what is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? We get the entire gospel message. The gospel is this, God hunts for us. God came for us. In Jesus, the creator of the vastness visits to show us his intention and his love. Gerald Wilson in his commentary on the Psalms writes, in spite of the incredible chasm that separates humans and God, so that humans appear as but minuscule specks of dust on a rock revolving around one of thousands of stars in but one of countless galaxies flung across the universe, God is still mindful of humans and has the will, purpose, and incredible gifting for our lives. the creator of the universe, of these billions of billions of billions of stars. That creator is mindful of you. He cares for you. God came for you and he wants you to find him. Let's pray. God, our God, it's not always easy to believe in you. Sometimes you feel so distant, and yet we look out at the vastness and are amazed. We examine our experience, and we think there must be a God.
You say that if we seek you with all of our heart, we will find you. Give us the courage to do just that, to seek you. And if you are real, to find you. Amen.